Who the Wild Things Are with Ryan McGuire. You gotta listen to your body. Oh my God, maybe, you know, I could get out there. I could do this. Let's take a ride. Find your wild side. Real stories. See with your own eyes. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna have the best time out here. Yeah, I was in tears. I was like, that's the best, man. Welcome back to Who the Wild Things Are. My name is Ryan McGuire, and I'm here to bring you conversations with the most wild folks on the planet. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend. Appreciate you guys. Let's get it going. So you're asking why it looks more tender. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is like true or not, but it's from uh, Carter Country Meats. And they're like a. Um, it looks so delicious. Yeah, here, grab one. There. When do I get to Cheers. eat it? Now. Cheers. Oh, baby. Super tender. Really good. Delicious. Mm. And this is the first time I tried. This is a skirt steak. Mm. So I figured you're a man that respects good meat, Hunter. Gotta Indeed. Try thing, get a Indeed. stamp of approval. This is delicious. Delicious. And you're smart because you, you know how to cut it against the grain rather than with the grain, which is essential Very for tenderness in each bite. Very important. So, yeah. Carter Country Meats, they do like regenerative agriculture, but with, uh, with cattle. So they're basically letting the cattle do their thing, run around on the land. Mm-hmm. And they associate it more to like a wild game because the animal is kind of just roaming like bovine wood Love you know it. in the wild so yep. i thought you'd appreciate that that's delicious that was very good well thanks for coming on ben i'm stoked to be here i think we have a lot of uh similar interests so i'm super stoked to talk to you yeah, man. um just like a little bit of background outside of like the hunter and uh, all the cool hobbies you have now if someone was watching this pod and they're like hmm that guy looks familiar Hmm. Why do you think they might? Why do you think they might think that? If they think I look familiar, it's uh, because I am um, really famous in the adult video world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I had to, I had to throw good. something yeah, in I love there. That. I love that. Um, no, if if they think I look familiar, they might have seen me on YouTube or Instagram. If they were looking up like fitness stuff, especially if it had to do with CrossFit, because I run. A company called Wad Prep that teaches people how to get better at CrossFit, and a lot of people recognize me because they'll like watch YouTube videos on like how to do pull-ups or how to do, you know, muscle-ups or something like that, and they'll recognize me from that. Yeah, that was actually what happened to me. I was like, I met you through Eric, and I was like, gosh, I know this guy from somewhere. Yeah. And then I realized it was some movement instructional video that I had watched on YouTube, like trying to get better at something. And I really like your guys' videos. Like you really break down like technique that like most i feel like alpha male strong guy we don't really think about like the skill part mm-hmm. of functional fitness it's more like just get strong and put in a lot of volume yep. so i really like the uh the instructional videos that you guys make yeah i mean it came the reason i like started doing instructional videos is i used to own a crossfit gym um and i basically like realized that a lot of people when they do crossfit they don't actually get taught very well how to do the things they'll mm-hmm. go through like a foundations curriculum sometimes but in terms of like learning the more like advanced skills a lot of times it's just like hey if you can do muscle ups then do them in the workout if not here's a modification and a lot of times there, there wasn't a lot of instruction to actually get people to be able to do these movements so i 
kind of just started leaning into just teaching people how to do all the the skills that it took me a little while to learn. And I started getting pretty decent at teaching them to other people in person. And then I just kind of took that information, put it on the internet. And that's, that's how Wad Prep was born. So. What, were the, are the fi- first videos you made just like trash? Terrible. Are they so bad? They're so bad. Are they still up? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm so pretty sure. watch these I'm, if you're. <laughs> I'm pretty sure on YouTube. Um, yeah, YouTube you can sort by like oldest to newest. And yeah, they're, they're pretty garbage. Pretty bad. The oldest videos that I have, though, are on Facebook. Mm. And you know what? I don't know if I've ever tried it, but I bet you could probably go to Facebook and then do some sort of like filter or sort by like oldest thing ever posted. And that's where you'd find the trash. Like that's where you'd find the the true garbage videos because it was so bad. I didn't know how to edit videos. I didn't know how anything worked, really. So I would like I'd shoot the video. I'd press record on my camera. Mm. I had this old Canon T3i and I would like press record. I would film me like teaching like a strategy video um uh because really the initial start of wad prep was me trying to teach people how to do the crossfit open workouts like Mm. those big workouts that everyone participates in um i would make strategy videos for that so i'd like press record and then i would do this whole strategy breakdown where i'm like writing things on the whiteboard and i'm trying to like go through like all these progressions and stuff like that and if i made a single mistake i would just be like ugh. And I'd stop the video, I'd have to erase the whiteboard, and then I would just restart. Oh no. So I would like shoot these like 15 minute videos and get like 13 minutes in and <laughs> me- and mess up and just be like, well, I guess you gotta restart it. Cause I didn't understand you could like edit it out. Um, so yeah, it was, they're really bad. I'll put it that way. They're well, really bad. You've come a long way now. Your videos look great. So, I mean, if they still sucked, we'd have an issue. So this is like a true comeback story. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we've lots of time, energy, money has been spent on on trying to improve our, our videos and now i have a great team like i mean really it it all revolves around the team like i have this this group of people that does a great job making sure that my videos don't suck because like i'm colorblind like very colorblind mm. so there's been times where i've had to shoot videos and even still sometimes you're like hey ben like if i don't have my videographer there like shoot this video really quick and i'll shoot it and they're just like Ben, why is your skin like ridiculously red or pink or like what's wrong with all the colors? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I'm like so bad at like getting things in focus. Like I'm just terrible at it. So for me, it's like as long as I can just sit down and just talk, that's that's my only realm of expertise is yeah, to do yeah. the talking and coaching. Everyone else takes care of everything else. So. Yeah. That, I mean, that's ideally like an ideal world. You have like the creative person sitting in front of the camera talking and all the other stuff is like something you don't have to worry about. Right? Yep. And that's kind of what I've created. I've, I've been really lucky, like have my own video studio um, here in Colorado that is, you know, basically like a mini CrossFit gym that I can have access to anytime I want. I have a video guy that comes in, his name's Travis, he crushes it. And then my whole team does all the editing and stuff like that. So pretty much like coming up with ideas for the videos, uh, we brainstorm together, my team. And then like, all I have to do is stand there and do the talking. Um, Anything else I would probably do very bad at, but as long as I'm just the one in front of the camera doing the talking, it seems to work out well. Yeah, Travis is a good guy to ask about that stuff. He actually, like, the reason these mics are here, the camera recommendations, all that stuff, I, I hit up Travis and I was like, yo, what do I need? Because I yeah. don't know anything I love about it. anything. And I he love told it. me, he's like, got to get this mic, got to get this camera. And I was like, all right. Heck yeah. Yeah, go. Travis knows his stuff. Um, it's been amazing. I mean, I guess I've been working with him for, I mean, over two years now. Um, and we just like, it's amazing when you have someone who you like, it's almost like dating, right? It's like you 
a lot of times don't connect with people. And yeah. then all of a sudden you connect with someone, you're like, oh, wow, like this person's very easy to be around. Like I enjoy, like I don't, I don't feel stressed or uptight. Or it's like, it's like fun to be around this person. Same thing goes for finding a good videographer. Like some videographers who would come in, I just felt like they were just like, all right, what's next? Like perform, like what are we doing? And I'm just like, dance but, monkey. <laughs> but Travis and I just like, we work so well together. And especially when we're making like comedy videos, like sometimes I make some funny videos. He's hilarious, so we just bounce all these jokes off of each other, and like it, it, we come up with some good stuff. It's it's a good time. And actually, as of recording tomorrow, I think one of the funniest videos I've ever made is coming out tomorrow. So I'm really excited for that. All right, can you give us a sneak peek, or is it a secret? Um, let's see. I don't. Can I channel the character? <laughs> Basically, it's like it's almost like I'm I'm like a Don Mazzetti of CrossFit okay. kind of thing. I call myself Chad, and then I basically telling everyone why they shouldn't register for the CrossFit Open. It's, it's going to be a good video. Nice. It's going to be funny. Yeah, the CrossFit Open. I was just talking to my sister about this because she's been a, a longtime CrossFitter. I've never done them, but I always see like in my feed just like people in complete disarray after those workouts, <laughs> just yeah. like sprawled out on the ground, dead. Yeah. So wh yeah. what's what's to come this year? Is there anything like that's changed or any big news coming into the Open? Nothing too big. Um, the Open this year is three three weeks long. Um, so they'll release a workout on Thursday, um, starting in like two weeks from now. They'll they'll release a workout on Thursday, and then you have until like Monday night to submit a score for that workout. And it's three weeks long. I'm sure they'll have like a couple workouts where it's like a two-parter, where they'll be like, mm -hmm. you know, establish a one rep max for this lift and then do this workout. But I think the reason you see the people that are in just like disarray, it's not that the workouts are any more difficult than a normal CrossFit workout. It's just that people in a competitive setting, yeah. um, as I'm sure you know, right? It's like when you're in that competitive setting and all of a sudden um, stakes are on the line, um, you know, literally stakes. Um, stakes. All of a sudden when you have that competition, you tend to push yourself to a level that you don't normally do in practice. Mm. Um, and I think that's why the Open brings out the best, truly the best of people because they get, they actually see what they're capable of. Yeah. Um, so it's a huge, I'm a huge fan of the Open because it gets hundreds of thousands of CrossFitters across the globe to register in this like united event where everybody's doing the same exact workout at the same yeah. time. And you actually get to see your score stacked up against your peers, but also it just brings the community together. Um, I really, really love it. And I've done it for a really long time. And it's also the biggest part. It's the busiest time of year for Wad Prep, like for my company, because we kind of are like, like if people know about us, it's usually like, oh, you're the guy who does those open videos, right? Like that's, that's what we're known for. That's kind of the bread and butter. So this is a very busy time of year for us. So when they release this video, it's like, um, you know, 50 meter handstand walk. And then you guys go back to the lab and you make a video like, here's how you should break up your 50 meter handstand walk if you can't do it. Yeah, exactly. So like they'll release a workout and, you know, let's say it's, um, we'll just use like toes to bar thrusters and wall balls, right? Um, so I'll make a video about like, all right, here's the whole workout and here's the strategy. Don't burn out on the you know, the wall balls because they're going to make you tired for the thrusters, blah, blah, blah. You know, like I'll come up with a strategy for it. And then also I will like teach individual tips on like, hey, here's how to do toes to bar most efficiently. Here's how to do, you know, the thrusters most efficiently. Here's how, here's some tips for the wall ball. So we, we like break down all the individual movements and then the whole strategy as a whole. And if, you know, if you had like a 15 year old kid whose goal was to be in the games let's say it was it was your son or your nephew or something and you were coaching him what is like the biggest piece of advice what would be the thesis of training him to become the best overall athlete <clears throat> hmm 
let's see, if they were at 15 years old, let's say, you know, younger person, like they have the potential to grow into becoming the athlete that could make it to the games. Um, I would probably start with like the foundation for their training would be strength focus. Like we'd, we want to build up a lot of strength for them to get to games numbers, which still just astonish me every every year that the CrossFit exists. Crazy. It's just like the numbers that people are, are competing with are unreal. Like right now, I'm strong enough to be pretty decent. Like I could compete very well, let's say a decade ago, if I was as fit as I am now. But now I'm like not even close, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just amazing the progression. So at let's say 15 or so years old, we would focus on building a really strong base in the Olympic lifts. So we'd make sure that their technique is dialed in, that their actual raw strength for squatting and pressing is dialed in. Um, and then, you know, we'd add on like accumulating skills. Like we'd make sure that they're very highly skilled. And then when it comes time to be like actually performing workouts, that's when we start building in the conditioning. So I would start with probably a heavy strength and gymnastics base. Um, and then from there, obviously we'd add in an engine because you have to be very, you have to have a very good engine to compete in, in CrossFit. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I'd focus is like, I think some of the best um, CrossFitters that we're going to see and have seen come out of uh, Olympic weightlifting camps or gymnastic camps. Like you see these people who are ex gymnasts dabble in CrossFit and all of a sudden they're great athletes or Matt Frazier, you know, the most dominant CrossFitter of all time. He Olympic was an Olympic lifting. weight. Yeah. Right. He was an, an Olympic lifter. So like he had that, that, expertise and then came into the sport and dominated so and just built that big engine so exactly. it's like he didn't have to focus on 50 percent. he didn't touch he a barbell had, very often at all and he, 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 he tells that on a couple podcasts he's like yeah i didn't do like any lifting for a very long time you know and then i could you know get on the bar and beat everyone and i feel like the developing like the barbell strength well one there's like a more genetic piece of it like definitely some limitations there but i think building the barbell piece from where I sit would take a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Like I think I could coach anyone to a pretty decent engine in eight to 12 months, like from zero. Mm -hmm. I think I could walk you through a program that would get you there. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can walk through someone how to get an right. elite squat in eight to 12 months. Exactly. That's it takes a, it takes a long time. And that's why I'd focus on, on the strength development early. Yeah. Cause if we want them to be like, built like a tank yeah and then but also have the gymnastics like abilities mm -hmm. right like the ability to do the skills and then that's when you you know once you have those two main building blocks the gymnastics capacity um or the gymnastic you know skills and movement patterns and then the ability to lift a lot of weight on the barbell um then you add in that engine on top and that's, that's basically what matt frazier did right is he had yeah. the he had the um the weightlifting background so he was very strong and could also move the bar very well skillfully and then he added the gymnastics and then lots of engine work and then voila he dominates and now so you were competing at a really high level at one point and you've kind of it seems to me since we've known each other kind of refocused your your hobbies oh like, yeah still yeah. i'm still... a washed up crossfitter <laughs> i enjoy doing it but i do it for the purpose of training for colorado right which Colorado, um, like you're alluding to, I have a few hobbies that, like I love having hobbies that require fitness because it gives me a reason to do CrossFit now. Yeah. Like CrossFit used to just be, I do CrossFit to get better at CrossFit, which eventually gets really boring, mm -hmm. right? And it did for me, I've been doing it for well over a decade, you know, like 12 years or something like that. And um, at some point in there, it just got boring. I just like, you know, I, I loved CrossFit, but I didn't 
want to get better at CrossFit anymore necessarily because I don't know, just like it felt like a losing proposition. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to train hard enough or be willing to train hard enough to make it to the tippy top of the, of the, you know, competitive landscape. But I just want to go fishing all the time, you know? And then eventually moving here to Colorado, my buddy introduced me to hunting. Um, so basically like backcountry bow hunting. So hiking very long distances in the backcountry, obviously camping out there overnight and stuff like that, that all of a sudden refocused my energy where it's like, whoa, the the fitness required to do that for 30 straight days is a lot. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not training, there's no way I'm going to be ready for this. And I'm going to be a liability in the woods for my buddy who's relying on me to help him, you know, hunt these elk. I need to be, I need to step it up. So that was so cool because it refocused my training to, I'm not just training to be good at exercise, right? I'm playing real sports, as Ken (laughs) Power says. Um, And my real sport was backcountry bow hunting and then also pickleball. Now it's like like my obsession. I love playing pickleball. Um, And it's so funny because even yesterday when I was playing, like I'm, I'm quick. I'll put it that way. I'm very, I'm very quick and I've, I can get to the ball that most people don't think I'm going to get to. And like, I think there was like three times yesterday I'm playing with pretty high level players. So it's like, how did you get that? And it all comes back to like this training that I'm doing in CrossFit allows me to be really explosive, but also gives me endurance to carry a ruck for miles and miles and miles. You know, I did, I think I did 315 or so miles last September. And that was all with a heavy ruck on and like being able to do both ends of the spectrum, the fast, explosive, powerful stuff, yeah. and also the very long, slow, grueling stuff. I I give all credit to CrossFit because CrossFit kind of prepares you for everything. Mm-hmm. So I can be the the Colorado athlete that goes backcountry snowboarding, that plays pickleball, and you know, you know, goes hunting potentially all in the same day. You know, like you can do all the three of those things in the same day, um, and it prepares me for being good or at least able to do all the things. I mean, mountain biking is another one. Like mountain biking is very much the way that I do it. It's not cross country. It's very much like, um, punchy. So like there'll be a sharp uphill and then a super fast downhill and then a sharp uphill. So I'm doing like enduro, you know, mountain biking. And that the only reason I'm able to hang with people there is because of that CrossFit training. So it's cool. Building up that engine. Exactly. I kind of had a similar experience. I wanted to be deep in the back country, wanted to do survival stuff. And I figured that the only way I was going to get out there short of like having a side by side was to run mm-hmm. like really lightweight run. And previously, like, you know, I played football. So I, I thought you ran fast when you go for like long runs, right? That would make sense. You run faster. It's over faster. But then I found out through friends and just being out in the bush, that long, slow running will get you deeper in the backcountry than anything else mm-hmm. or long hikes up mountains. Mm-hmm. And like you start to develop this engine, but you're doing it with a purpose. It's not just a slog. Like I'm not just running to run and torture myself or look a certain way aesthetically. It's like I'm running because I know this is going to give me a capability to do what I really love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and, I, and that like people who struggle with motivation in the gym, I think, one of the the key elements is they have to understand what their purpose for training is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, I get emails all the time and messages like, Hey, how do you, how do you deal with motivation? It's like, well, motivation simply comes from what is, what is the reason you're doing the thing? So if you're having issues with workout motivation, chances are you have no, you don't have a very good reason to be working out yeah. or you haven't connected. You might, you might have it. You just haven't connected with it yet. Whether that's, I want to stay in shape and live a long, healthy life for my grandkids, right? 
you probably have that somewhere deep down in there, but if you haven't truly connected with it, you're going to lose motivation. Sure. But man, for me, when, when hunting season's around the corner, like you don't have to be like, Ben, are you working out today? It's like, you better believe it because if I, you know, mess up and don't work out and I'm out of shape and I can't handle, you know, hiking over that last ridge to, you know, at the last 20 minutes of dark or 20 minutes of daylight to get to that, you know, big bull that's bugling, then I failed. Right. And that like that motivate that keeps me awake at night almost. Yeah. So I want to make sure that I'm prepared for it. So you have to make sure that you have a deep connection with why you're training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't have that, then the chances of you sticking with it are just, I don't know, low, at least for me, it isn't. If I don't have a purpose to do something, I just, not, I'm not going to do it. Right. Um, so yeah. What, what about, um, like the difference between how you would train, you know, just for CrossFit versus training for the backcountry? Are you putting in more miles? Are you like just doing more backpacking? Like, are you doing, uh, fishing trips during the summer? What kind of stuff do you, you know? So, train? I mean, there's a lot of different camps here. Some people, uh, to prepare for the backcountry rucking, do like a lot of rucking and a lot of backcountry stuff. I don't. Right. Um, and that is simply a matter of like, I, in a few of the guys that have trained me, like uh, one of my buddies, Dan runs a big, um, elk training camp called elk shape. And he's like mm. a big fitness guy. Yeah, yeah. Right. So Dan just does CrossFit. You know, he's like, dude, if you just do CrossFit and make sure you're hitting some longer workouts, you'll be ready for the backcountry. Sure. And that's kind of what I did the last two years. I didn't do any specific rucking other than like scouting trips to try to find elk. I didn't do anything that was like outside the realm of just constantly varied functional fitness performed at a high intensity. That's it. Um, and as long as I do that, I'm, I'm in shape enough to hang with pretty much everyone that I go hunting with. Um, and there probably is an argument where like, if I got more miles on my feet, like if I did a lot more running or more rucking, I I could potentially be more prepared. Uh, but both of those things are very boring to me. So, so just to, to, uh, I guess, appease my ADHD. It's easy for me to go hit a CrossFit workout in an hour or, you know, even two hours if I'm doing a longer day and then just be done with it. It's a little bit more effort and conscious annoyance if I have to like, all right, let's go hike, hike over here. Let's do, you know, so, um, I also think that backcountry snowboarding, you know, probably tickles that itch a little bit. Um, cause I do that quite a bit over the winter, just for no other reason that I love backcountry snowboarding, not to get fit or anything. So I think that probably helps a little bit. And then, like I said, the preseason scouting trips, I'm covering a ton of miles then. So that's training, even though I don't view it as training, I just view it as I need to find elk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think naturally the CrossFit that I do combine with a couple of these other hobbies, like mountain biking too, right? Yeah, like mountain biking long. is getting my legs in shape for really long, you know, cause you're mountain biking for multiple hours. Um, so my hobbies tend to lead me to be fit enough for the backcountry. But if I had a yeah. sedentary job and I didn't have any of those hobbies, then yeah, you probably got to put some miles on your feet. Yeah. I think one thing that's important is just the, not even necessarily like the physical experience, but just like time in the backcountry. Mm. For me, I have like guiding months are typically more during the summer which kind of leads you right into September. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I get to September, I feel like a lot of people are spending their one month in the backcountry, and I've been in the backcountry for a couple months. Right. And I feel very at home. I know how my shoes are going to react. I know what's wrong with my backpack. I know exactly. Any you know little... where all the holes in your tent are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know I'm going to, when I put my canvas on my tent up, and there's going to be little things of light poking through. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just like, I like that I have that stuff kind of ironed out beforehand. It's similar to scouting in a way, but just like spending time out in the backcountry 
it's not even necessarily the physical component. It's just the comfortability with being a woodsman. Absolutely. Just being out there. Well, it's so funny because the first couple days um, in the woods, I, you know, sleep. I like can't sleep. Right. It's like it almost it just like doesn't happen. But then, you know, when I'm doing these pre-scouting trips, by the time the season actually starts, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. It's not like like if I had to start the season with the sleep deprivation that I get in the scouting trips, like that would be a bad start. But I kind of get that out of the way. Kind of like you said, like I dial in my gear. It's like, oh, I'm missing this piece of equipment or this piece is broken. Or, I don't need this. Or I don't. Yeah, but that that's probably the biggest lot. one is I don't need this extra nine pounds that I'm carrying. Um, and then when you're done with that, then you're, you're ready for the season. So I agree. It's exciting. What's the uh, what's the biggest hunt you have going on like in the near future this this fall, this summer? So coming up in the spring, I have some turkey hunts. They're the definition of not big hunts. Turkey hunting is just fun. Um, and there's no you know hiking or anything like that required. But I am trying to hopefully plan a trip to um, to Hawaii to do access deer again. That would be a lot of fun. And honestly, I was really surprised. I, I went to Hawaii last year and, and um, hunted an axis deer. And it was way more similar to Colorado to Colorado than I ever imagined because it was like gnarly hiking because mm. it's a volcano. Mm. You're climbing volcanic rock and you know, like you're, it's very much like a multi-mile ruck to get up into the mountains where all these deer, I mean, there's deer everywhere. And then you get one and I got to pack it out and, you know, I almost rolled my ankle like 10 times on the way down because there wasn't any trails. Um, so that was really good training, I thought. Um, and then also it's nice that you're in Hawaii and it's an island and it's beautiful. Um, but really the big hunt i mean the main the the grand finale if you will is uh, is elk season like i'm like i said last last year to my team like don't don't plan on me doing anything in the month of september so i took off the entire month and like i would climb to the top of a peak and like get service like once a week otherwise i'm off my sat phone and uh yeah i mean that's the big finale or that's like that's like the big kahuna is just like can i get um successfully hunt an elk in september uh, with my buddies, with my best friends. Uh, and I think we have one, one of my best friends is joining our little tight knit group. Um, he's like all in on, on learning. I just taught him how to shoot a compound bow and he's like sending videos every single day of his groupings and he's practicing his calling. Like, so he's, he's ready. He's, he's committed. So JT is going to be joining our little tight knit group of, of hunters. Um, so I'll be doing some scouting trips with them. All of September hunting elk. Hopefully, we'll f at least fill one tag. Uh, we've got really close the last couple of years. Um, we missed we missed our opportunities literally. Um, and then I also, for whatever reason, thought it was a good idea to the week after I've hunted for an entire month and I'm absolutely wrecked and destroyed from Colorado elk season. I'm going to Alaska for a 10 day caribou hunt a D DIY caribou hunt, oh, which is nice. like, which is like the gnarliest hunt you Savage. could possibly do. It's like going to be 40 degrees raining and windy. And I'm trying to bow hunt a uh, caribou in on Adak Island, which is like essentially Russia. And that is a terrible idea, but I'm doing it. So, so backing <laughs> up real quick, um, for people that don't know what an access deer is, tell them a little bit about that history. What, like, how does this deer end up on Hawaii, and like, what's like the special mirage about the access deer? So I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it a little bit. These are like very rough details. You might know better than me, but what I understand is that um, maybe like a hundred or so years ago, basically a really long time ago, the king of Hawaii was gifted 
axis deer by i, I want to say it was japan uh, the axis deer is native to southeast asia i, I think it's japan um, let's go with it run with it so they they were gifted from let's say japan and again these are you know loose details they were gifted this deer the king of hawaii was gifted this deer because it's one of the best eating deer that could possibly exist it's absolutely delicious not gamey at all so they were gifted this deer and because hawaii has no natural predators uh these deer started to populate everywhere and now i'm not sure how many islands are on but the islands they are on are absolutely completely overwhelmed with deer like to a point where they will have to fly helicopters and just slaughter whole herds of deer because of the erosion that they're causing. Right. They're causing like basically the whole mountainsides to be, you know, void of, of grasses and stuff like that. And then the runoff is just like basically ripping away these mountains in Hawaii. Yeah. So you have, you have root systems that come from the plants and the root systems job is to keep all the soil intact. So when all the leaves are eaten off by the deer, the plant dies with it goes the root system. And then you have, major erosion exactly and that's what and i've seen it firsthand so um axis deer is not only one of the best meats that you can possibly eat like it's absolutely delicious they live in the sun all year round like it just tastes unbelievable it's also ridiculously overpopulated and then a lot of hawaii um especially these smaller islands like uh, molokai that i hunted like that's their economy it's like mm -hmm. they rely on hunters come in hunt and, and leave so that's like that's why i'm all in on it it's like it's nothing but positives all around i guess it's not positive for the deer um but it actually probably is because they're so overpopulated they they are running into probably some starvation issues or much better than i go harvest a deer and then take it home and eat it for the next several months then um the hawaiian government have to shoot it and just leave it there yeah. right which is kind of because they have so many deer that's kind of what they do mm -hmm. um so that's that's my understanding of axis deer and uh yeah it's it's it was an amazing trip I think a lot of people when they hear hunting, and I, I maybe this is getting a little better now, but a lot of people when they hear hunting, they hear savage. They hear like uh, people that want to dismember animals and want to slaughter things. And I feel like the hunters I know, it's not really the case. It's more yeah. about this is what makes sense from like a logic perspective is for me to get my meat in a natural way. Uh, take access deer, for example, uh, funding an economy, taking care of a problem, acting like a natural predator would. And ideally executing a swift and relatively painless death compared to anything that's going to happen naturally like starvation uh you know coyotes anything like right. that disease old, infection freezing to death a lot yeah. worse than taking a swift du double lung and yeah 40 right. yards and it's over exactly um and then i'd say another thing is um the hunting that i like so i used to be like an, an anti-hunter not mm. in the sense where i'm like you know going to PETA protests and rallies but i was a huge fisherman growing up and my for whatever reason my like perception of hunting was like oh these are just people who want trophies right like i see all these people like here's this giant deer and it's dead and it's mine right um and it, i perceived it as like yeah a lot of these people are just trying to kill the biggest animal they can and like i would see these you know pictures of people with like you know giraffes and in africa i'm like what the heck is the point like this like it just seems so ridiculous even like that whole story about the guy who shot the lion off the you know basically right on the edge of the preserve like all these like really horrible stories of hunting and luckily my, one of my best friends gary here in colorado um he was like the one that's like you got to try hunting with me and i was like i don't know man and he's like listen like let me teach you a little bit about hunting and then he kind of like in 
sending me videos and like just lecturing me and stuff like that kind of showed me that like true hunting is like essential for the pre preservation of like our natural resources. And it's also essential for a lot of the populations of animals that we have, like the trickle down effect of the taxation that they put on hunting, the trickle down effect of the actual hunting tags, like the licenses that we're purchasing, it protects more land than pretty much anything else. Um, it is like almost all of the hunters I know are absolute sportsmen where they're like, they care about the natural resources and the environment more than any hippie person from the city does. I assure you, um, they are the people who are literally investing time, money, energy, and actually have boots in the ground, like protecting the natural resources that we have. So if anyone cares about the environment, you know, more than anyone else, it's actually the hunters because they know that if the environment's not there, um, the environment's completely screwed up they're not going to have their ability to hunt, which is it's fun and it's primal and it's amazing, but they're not going to have the meat. Um, they're usually doing it for the purposes of having really good, amazing times with friends, having good meat to eat. Like the memories that I created with Gary in the woods last September were like memories that'll last my entire life. And like now I have this entire freezer full of meat. And like anytime someone comes over, I'm cooking, you know, bear, deer, uh, elk, you know, something that I've, I've, you know, harvested before. And there's always a story behind it. And I know where it came from. So like, long story short, hunting to me used to be this perception of like a bunch of rednecks going for trophies and bragging to their friends about it. And now hunting to me is very much like the ultimate sportsman, the person who cares about the environment the most, who cares where their meat comes from, and who actually knows, who knows how to live as an apex apex predator in this world that we live yeah. in. Um, so anyway, I've very much done a 180 from not liking hunting to now I'm now it's my biggest obsession probably. Yeah, I, I kind of have a similar experience, I think, because we both didn't grow up hunting. So we didn't really have an understanding of it. And I grew up similar to you every waking free moment I had I was fishing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was catch and release, which right. as I've gotten older, I've become like less and less interested in catch and release. Sure. Because as I've really started thinking about the lives that I'm taking and um, whether it's directly by my hand or something like Carter Country Meats where I know the people that are doing the slaughter, I have a connection there and I know that the pain that that animal is going through is for a reason. And now I, I find myself struggling to do like catch and release fishing because I feel like I'm just like jerking the fish around and messing them up and then and putting them back so sure. i've kind of like from what i did when i was a childhood person when i was a childhood person when i was a child i literally flipped 180 mm -hmm. on both hunting and fishing yeah which is, it's interesting to see like how we progress as we get older and our our minds change a little bit yeah it is it is really interesting that's an interesting point about about fishing obviously almost all the fishing i did was catch and release um i used to run like a shark fishing guide company so we'd catch these sharks we'd tag them we'd release them right so the client got their their thrill of reeling in and touching a you know eight plus foot shark um and then i also like made sure that we um you know did a little bit of research so we'd always like measure measure the fish take a picture tag it with the tag and the amount of the amount of recaught sharks that i've like basically when your shark gets recaught they send you a t-shirt and a hat and say and, a, and like a data sheet that says hey here's where your shark was recaught here's the approximate length here's the weight here's and the amount of sharks I've like caught in Delaware and then they're caught like five years later on like the tip of Florida. It's so cool. That's um, wild. So, ca so catch and release, especially like 
at least like the catch and release that I've been a part of, especially if it's like your goal is like to be very swift with it. Yeah. Um, it, it, the data kind of shows that it, it does work, right? You're not, you're not completely like the fish. It's not like the fish doesn't eat again. Like some people will make you believe. Um, and in fact, I've even caught the same shark twice in the same day, hmm. right? Which <laughs> just shows it's like, all right, this person clear or this shark clearly didn't care. Um, but yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing as you grow up and you learn the way, like your little perception of the world is like, you know, point zero 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 repeating for a very long time, 1% of how the world actually works. Right. So as we grow and as we learn, it's like, you know, everyone has these like very staunch opinions and staunch views on something like hunting, but all of a sudden a door opens, we learn a little bit more, we dig a little bit deeper. And then all of a sudden now we're on the exact opposite side of that coin of saying, oh, I, I fully support this. And I, I find it a very valuable thing for the world. Um, so it's, as long as you're open to like learning and uh, exploring new things, I feel like you can always, you can always change your mind. You can always change your opinion. And if you're ever in a place where you are unwilling to change your opinion and you're unwilling to change your mind, then you're probably wrong or you're, you're yeah. or you're, you're very much at a risk of, of not understanding the whole picture. It's like, I feel like I can be convinced to do anything and to believe in anything mm. simply because I don't have the arrogance to think that the things that I believe in are the only way the world works or, you know, I am the only right person on earth. Yeah. It's um, that indoctrination, right? Like you, you get these beliefs that X is right. So Y, Z are also right. And then like suddenly you have this belief system based on a fundamental belief. But when that one thing falls out, then yeah. everything gets flipped on its head. Yeah. I always say, um, I think I have more in common with a vegan than I do a mindless meat eater. Probably. I think because we both eat meat doesn't make me like on your, we're not on the same team necessarily. I think everyone should be thinking about where their meat comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, I know I didn't when I was growing up. My dad told me that we don't kill animals. Mm -hmm. And then we would eat steak for dinner. And I was like left very confused for a long time. Sure. And I, I think an interesting thing about it is the more it resembles us, the more we care. So it's like with fish, people are much more willing to like catch and release fish, but you would never catch and release a deer right. because you would see its eyes and you would be there with the animal and be like, oh, this feels terrible. Sure. Like I'm definitely not going to do this, but a fish we have like less connection to because sure. it doesn't necessarily walk like us. It doesn't look right. like us, but you see a baby deer, you're like, well, that's kind of like a little it's, baby human. It's cute. Or a baby bear. Yeah. Baby bear. I mean, my gosh, you're adorable. Yeah. It's just the closer we, the more we see ourselves in something, the more we begin to care about it. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah it's a it's an interesting thing and i i think that we're moving in the right direction like i think i mean take it or leave it i think social media and a lot of like the access to information is actually allowing us to spread the message and yeah for people to learn about it. i've been actually pretty surprised because i've been pretty open with my hunting adventures like even on my like i have a i run a crossfit social media company essentially right so i have a decent amount of followers on something like instagram where they're following us for CrossFit tips. Yep. Um, but I'm pretty open about my hunting there. You know, I'm, I don't hide myself or what I do there. And I've actually been pretty, you know, surprised at how few people have been like unfollowed. I hate you. I mean, it happens, but there's several, lots of, of times where like vegans or, or people who are, you know, very much animal rights activists have, you know, reached out and be like, hey, like, I really appreciate your you know, like you sharing this. And while I don't choose to go that route, like I, I don't want to hurt harm an animal ever, even if that means never eating meat again, 
I think if people do choose to eat meat, meat you're doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. It's the people in this middle ground that that eat meat and and also somehow hate hunting. It just doesn't make any sense because there's no more ethical meat to eat than one that you harvested and know where it came from yourself. Absolutely, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That and then I'm, I think also this like resurgence of like closely held farms too. Yes, um, absolutely. You know, like basically being involved in the cow's life from birth to death, mm-hmm. making sure that they have an ethical life where they're free to roam and have plenty of space. They're not confined, sharing diseases. Yep. And obviously, shit works. Oh yeah, it tastes amazing. I mean, it's, it's great steak. <laughs> it like, tastes so good. You can't say that like that's, it's like for the product. It's just they, they want so much velocity and beef that they want to pack them all into one little center so they can just rip through as many as possible. Right, and thus, and you know, um, some of based on what I saw, so I was a agricultural business major in college. And so I have a little bit of understanding of the ag industry and the, the CAFOs, like the confined animal feeding operations that a lot of the m- traditional meat comes from that we get from like a Burger King or something like that, right? Like the, the environmental impact of that is terrible. So when mm-hmm. like vegetarians and vegans and, and, and the such are like very adamant about like, we like no more meat, it's bad for the environment there is some truth that rings to that, right? There is some truth from, yeah, the confined animal feeding operations are terrible with the amount of methane gas and like, just like everything about it is, is kind of ugly when mm-hmm. it comes to the environment. But again, like we can't go all into these opinions because regenerative farms, like, like you're talking about, or um, ethically hunted meat, like those are some of the best possible things for the environment because the net positive of, of, you know, regenerative farming is is better for the like you're leaving the environment better than when it started, which is amazing. Uh, and then same thing with hunting. Um, the tags that are allocated and making sure that you're hunting the right things at the right time with the you know right tags. Your the the net benefit to the actual environment is is a positive, not a negative, because the environment would be a very bad place if predators didn't exist. Right, the ecosystem would collapse with predators didn't exist. So we have to make sure that there's predation and that's a lot of times where where humans come into play because Mm -hmm. we have very much populated the world to a point where we we need to be the predators we can't just let wolves run around everywhere we can't just go releasing grizzly and polar bears all over the place right we we now are the ones that kind of have to take care of the predation so why not do it ethically and then it feeds people so yeah there's a term in biology called a keystone predator Mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean the highest predator a lot of times it's somewhere in the middle. So like orca eats otter, otter eats uh, this fish, this fish eats starfish, starfish eats mollusks. Where somewhere in the middle, if that predation stops, that's what blows up the entire system. It's mm-hmm. not always necessarily the highest, highest right. on the food chain. I feel like we always think about, oh, who's the highest on the food chain? That keeps everything regulated. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily, because frankly. Well, I each mean, piece of the chain, right? I mean, if you break one piece of the chain, it's a broken chain, right? right. Um, yeah. So each one of those, pre- you know, each one of those uh, interactions is so important. What What do you, one thing when I first started hunting, um, the biggest thing that got in my way was money. Being a young kid, I knew zero people that mm-hmm. hunt, hunt, well, let me backtrack. I wanted to use a primitive bow because I wanted to be able to make it with my hands, be able to make the arrows. It seemed more resourceful and also cheaper. And you're so much cooler than I am for that. Well, that's a fact. But <laughs> you're set so much cooler than me. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I went that avenue because I felt like, one, I could level up when I didn't necessarily have a bunch of money. 
because um, sure. I mean, you know, bows are crazy expensive. Guns are pretty expensive. How do you get into this sport if you don't know anybody? If you're listening to this pod and you're like, oh, I don't know anyone. I don't have a lot of money. You know, I'm fresh out of college. Or yeah. Anything. So, um, you know, there's a lot of really good resources on the internet. Um, like what's so cool, similar to what books were back in the day, now YouTube is uh, modern day. It's like you can essentially be friends, they just won't know it, with some of the best and brightest minds in any particular industry. Um, so if, if you wanna be friends with one of the best CrossFit coaching companies, right? Like that's where we come in, we, at least we think. But I approach the same way that I want people to learn CrossFit um, with how I learned how to hunt, which was scouring the internet for information. And especially if you're a budget hunter, the guys at uh, the hunting public mm. is a great resource because all they do is public land hunting. So they're not like, there's so many freaking internet hunters that are famous because they have these, you know, basically they're hunting on private ranches and it's just ridiculous and it's not realistic. Like the kinds of scenarios you see these people in are not the scenarios you're going to run into hunting on public land. But the hunting public guys, they literally hunt public land only and they they're the stuff that they use for hunting they're all budget conscious mm. like one one year that i saw the guy in one of his videos he used a plastic water bottle as his bugle tube because he, for, he like lost his bugle tube right so they're very resourceful and they're they're not using like super crazy top of the line everything and they're not super sponsored they're just like nah we just like like here are the things that work for us and we put in time effort and you know and a little bit of money but we make it work so i would heavily invest in finding a few trusted resources that are the kind of hunter that you want to be. If you're going to be hunting public land and, and, you know, trying to do it as cheaply as possible, then those are the guys you want to go with. Um, if you are willing to invest a little bit more and, you know, you're just like, Hey, I'm, I'm all in on this, then there's other resources to go to. So mm. I would just, I scour the, the internet. And then if you are fortunate enough to live close to a bow shop, um, especially if you're getting an archery, obviously, if you're close enough, if you live near enough to a bow shop, like the amount of helpful people that you'll run into there is is amazing. Like you can you can register for three um, D archery shoots, you can register for all kinds of stuff that are like social events for these people. Yeah, you're gonna run into a lot of hunters that don't have anything to do with you because they're you know lips are sealed. Yeah. They're not gonna tell anyone how to do anything. But just as many people are gonna be really helpful um, if you go in with a beginner's attitude and. Don't try to act like you know everything and just say, hey, I'm here to soak up as much information as you're willing to give me, be respectful, and you'll be amazing how far that gets you. Yeah, I mean, that's with uh, Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear. I yeah, walked in there, I'm like, I wanna shoot trad and I know nothing. Like I literally have made little bows in the in the woods and that's all I've ever tried to do and they don't work that well. Yeah. And then next thing I know, I've got like Olympic coaches like telling me to keep my elbow up and yep. like back tension and like all these like, really fundamental tips that i mean unless you're with like really good professionals you're gonna miss out on a lot of that stuff exactly so. and there's nothing that there's nothing that beats in person right nothing. so obviously you know for everyone most everyone has an internet connection right so that gets you connected to a lot of these great online resources but if you can get in person and rub shoulders with someone who can you know peer over your shoulder as you're you know shooting your first few arrows and stuff like that like that is that's so valuable mm -hmm. uh, and rely on your network. Like for me, I didn't really know that many hunters. I knew Gary, who's the guy who was getting me into it, but he has, hasn't been successful, right? So how much can I really learn from him, right? <laughs> Other than uh, what he's learned through his research. 
Um, and I kind of reached out to my network and then uh, one of my buddies, it was actually Eric, of course it was Eric. Of course. Uh, Eric Hinman introduced me to a guy named Kurt that he'd done like a collaboration with. And then he does 10,000 stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Eric Kurt. told me to hit him up the other day. I yeah. Meet so, Kurt. so I'm super tight with Kurt. He's, I'm going to shoot with him on Friday actually. Nice. Um, super tight with Kurt and that's who I'm going to um, Alaska with. Okay, cool. So now Kurt and I are great friends because I was just like, Hey man, if you ever need someone to come hunting with you, like I'm your guy. And of course he goes hunting all the time. So I'm just with him all the time. And uh, yeah, it's just like being open to be introduced to new people and like just just be an open-minded person you'll you'll meet people who can take you under their wing and teach you stuff yeah it, it can be a very intimidating culture to go into like everything like snowboarding has its own culture surf has its yes. own culture like hunting can be definitely intimidating because everyone's like kind of gruff and like a little bit seasoned and i've seen more than you've seen dude and it's a yes. little bit scary at first so Having a couple people that you can bounce ideas and questions off of. And you'll find the right people. So my first experience was exactly what you're talking about. I'm not going to name the bow shop because I don't want to talk too much hate. But I went to this famous bow shop, walked in, didn't know what I was doing, but I had a list of stuff I was supposed to get sent from Gary. Like Gary's like, get a bow, get a sight, get a this, get a that. And I went in, I'm like, hey guys, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm supposed to get all this because I'm going elk hunting in September. And of course it already are like oh, snickering you know, a little like, bit okay this this guy and they you know the guy starts helping me get set up with the bow and they keep asking me all these questions and they're like hey do you want to do this or this and i'm like i don't know guys i like i don't even know how to answer this question gary says this because i would text him and then gary would tell me what to say gary says this that happened like five times what about you know you want to are you thinking 33 axle axle or 31 axle axle i'm like guys i don't know what that means i'm a beginner I don't know what you're talking about. Let me text Gary. Gary respond, you know, like, and then there was like, it happened again and Gary responded. And then one of the guys in the back was just like, is Gary going to shoot the bow for you as well? And I was just like, I was like, I was pissed. I'm going to shoot this bow at you. I, and I didn't know how to do that. So I couldn't, um, <laughs> I was pissed though. Like that is a, that is a, like, that is not how you get more people into the sport. Yeah. That is not going to help further the agenda of this amazing hunting community. But luckily, several other shops that I've been to, um, including the one that I just went to with my buddy in Salida, have been absolutely top-notch, incredible bow shops where it's just like, they're just like so helpful. And they're like, hey, here are the options. You know, you got your high end, your middle of this. Like, I would suggest this. You know, like just amazing people that work with you for seven hours to get a bow set up mm -hmm. and answer all of your questions and, and, and teach you all these things. So for every, yes, you could have my experience and have the, you know, just basically feel like you're a total idiot and be made to feel like an idiot. Or you can have great experiences like Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear. Great shop. Like every time I've been in there, guy. Like I try to let them know how beginner I am and they probably still underestimate how much of a beginner I am, but they've just always been so nice and kind and, and helpful. So like you're going to have certain people at certain shops that are just gruff and annoying and just frankly mean. And then you're going to have some people that are super nice and accommodating and you just, just kind of have to put on your, 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 you know, big boy pants and go accept the, some criticism because you're a beginner coming into a sport that has a lot of egos and a lot of like you said, like people who like, I've done everything. I've hunted every, every animal on every 12 continents, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, you're going to have to get over that. But some, most people I would say are very, very helpful and accommodating. Yeah. It's like the feast versus famine mindset. The people who feel like you're, 
you being there is taking away from their opportunities that like manifest in this weird way where they're like shitty to you yeah and you're like dude i'm a public land hunter i'm not taking any opportunities away from you i know i don't look the part or maybe play the part that you're expecting me to play but i'm just here to learn right so let's just let's just like, i think the best part was i the at the time i had a tesla so <laughs> so That's i pull perfect. up i pull up to this bow shop with a tesla model y performance and they're just like who is this guy you know like who is this denver crazy liberal hunting wannabe whatever and it's just hilarious but of course what's so funny now it, like to make this whole story full circle is I'm actually like hanging out with the guy who said, uh, like, is he going to shoot it for you too? We ended up becoming really good friends. So like, you know, some people are going to be rough around the edges and they're going to, I mean, I think that's a lot of times what men do, right? Is they'll right. poke you and prod you. Like you get challenged when you try to enter a community mm -hmm. or enter a tribe. Like even uh, that book Tribe by Sebastian Younger, I think talks about it a little bit. Or no, I'm thinking of, there's a book uh, called The Way of Men mm -hmm. that I've read um, by some guy by that um, dude donovan something dang it i've hung out with him and i forgot his name anyway he has a really cool book but he talks about like a lot of times especially like in a tribe of men like if you come to join a crew right you're going to be tested and pro like you're going to be challenged and you're going to be like jabbed and they're going to like maybe spear you a bit because they want to see how you react and if yeah. you can handle it then they're like all right this guy's legit but if I like got angry and walked out of the bow shop and left him a, a nasty Google review, it's like, all right, you know, that guy's clearly not tough enough to cut it in this this sport if he can't handle like a couple jokes, right? So if if you go in and you're you're willing to stand up for yourself and stay confident, don't back down from any challenge, then I think the doors will open for you, even at the rough and gruff shops. I think if it's a good, like, I mean, is Gary going to shoot it for you? That's kind of a good diss. I mean, like, I, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I would have laughed. I think everybody like, laughed, and I laughed and then probably turned red as well. <laughs> so, I mean, like, if, if it's a good shot, you just got to take it on the chin. Yeah, I'm pretty going. sure I, the comeback I made was like, um, ah, man, what did I say? I had a very witty comeback for it. I was, he's like, is Gary going to shoot it for you too? And I was just like, oh, man, I... Totally blanking on what the comeback was, but I had a comeback. That it was, was decent, important. It was, it was decent. Yeah. It was decent. I played it well. Yeah, you, you got to have something in the something in the chamber to make sure that you get through that. I think I was like, I was like, I don't know. I have to ask Gary. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. I'm pretty sure that's what I said. That's pretty. You good. Got a chuckle out of it. So last year you said that you had some missed opportunities on your elk. You want to tell me tell me a story because I don't think I've heard this yet. Oh man, there's a lot of stories. Um, we don't have time for all of them. <laughs> um, but long story short, so my my hunting partner Gary he missed three shots uh in the season a uh, couple of two of two of them were very i would say very difficult shots like one was a, a 68 yarder mm. um on a cow that was tough one was one that was like pretty dark he didn't have a chance to like he ranged kind of improperly the main one that hurt the most was i called in a, a big big bull across mm. this giant ag field called him in and i got him to 23 yards and Gary missed the 23 yards because Gary didn't have a chance to range. Um, the, the elk zigged when he thought he was going to zag. He didn't get a chance to range and had already drawn and then couldn't let down because the elk was staring at him. Mm. So he just guessed and he shot at his 40 pin at 23 yards mm. and it went right over his back on this big bull that I called in. So I did my job, called him in really close, and Gary you know, missed uh, because of several factors that, you know, frankly – we'll know better next time. Um, and then, uh, the final day of the season, um, 
the the final day of the season i missed one through it was a tough shot but it was a tough it was a shot that in practice i would hit probably seven out of ten times and uh it was like a 42 yard shot through some trees yeah and i hit a tree and uh yeah and it was a big five by five the final morning of the season and it was that was rough dude like i just i wanted to i didn't cry but like i probably if i was less dehydrated i probably would have cried like i, I was just like i mean that was it man it was devastating like he, he walked out exactly where i wanted him to i arranged it everything was perfect and i just pulled the shot man i just i just missed i wasn't prepared enough was um, it buck fever or was it did oh, you I'm just miss I'm sure it was Buck. I mean, I'm sure there was all kinds of factors, man. Heart um, racing. For, I guess I mean, for people oh that don't God. know, it's like you're hunting. You've been thinking about this moment for 11 months and yeah. 29 and it came, days. It frankly popped out of nowhere. It was like um, we had this, you know, a lot of times, you you know, you'll you'll call, you'll hear a bull respond, and, like, you got plenty of time to set up. And they crash a lot, the woods. Yeah, and, and a lot of times them. they're not even moving. Like, like, they'll call, and you go to them. Well, this bull, on the final morning, they were rutting really hard. Um, you know, we made a call. We heard them super far in the distance like hundreds of yards I'm like, all right we'll head that way and we're like maybe 20 yards into heading that way about to crest this hill and he just rips off a bugle right like right next to us and so we just jump off of a cliff essentially so i'm like the shot i shot i'm like leaning into the side of a cliff like a muddy like like almost vertical muddy cliff and i'm like leaning into it on one knee also leaning back to get my bubble balance like it was just a, it was a difficult shot but like you know, if I, if I could, if I shot it right now, I'd probably shoot it perfectly. But the fact that it was like super surprised out of nowhere, I was caught off guard, you know, like it was just, I was, yeah, there's a, there was a lot of factors and nothing can prepare you, I yeah. think for, for that opportunity other than having that opportunity and failing it. Right. So, I think that's the biggest thing that people fail to fail to prepare for is uh, like shot diversity. Like, so many people shoot 60, they see standing up all the time 60 to 70 percent of their shots right here they're relaxed they're not out of breath and nothing's going on it's like the the range i'm building back here i've got two trees that are kind of set up like this so that you can and you have a hill on the left so you can shoot from the bank around the one tree through the trees to the yep. right of both trees and then you know 50 percent are from a knee yeah you know another 25 percent maybe around one of the trees yep it's just yep. you're not going to be sitting there everything's not going to be perfect there's going to be brush there's going to be weird things in the way that yeah you're gonna have to deal with i mean i the uh the first elk shot i was ever a part of um this was two years ago at the end of the season i did i wasn't i was neither calling nor shooting i was just kind of there right nice. um and we had this bull come literally in the middle of a field it like walked by us in the middle of a field with no cover it was a crazy i can't even be i can't even describe the story because no one would believe it essentially this bull just walks by us in the middle of like a multi-hundred acre field where i somehow it just decided to walk right by us and uh the guy who shot he had to shoot from crisscross applesauce like we were just sitting on the ground assuming this bull's gonna see us and get scared and it didn't and then he like drew sitting down like not even from a knee he was just like literally sitting cross-legged and it's like unless you practice those shots you're gonna you're gonna miss them and he didn't yeah he, he basically missed it was a bad shot so yeah i mean it's it happens i think more often than not that you're in a compromised position yes i think over 50 percent of the shots you are on one knee two knees bending around something right or i mean or you've drawn for a minute and a half like gary did that one time and or then, you're soaking wet or it's dark or yeah. you know it's just like yeah. backcountry hunting is that way and yeah. i think that's why we love it yeah that's, absolutely you can't replicate it yeah. 
Well, Ben, I mean, I think we could talk for about six more hours. So many. There's so many yeah. stories that we could share, um, but, you know, we have to go make stories together. That's know? right. We got to get out get out in the woods and do some more backcountry snowboarding, hunting, all the things. Yeah, let's uh, snowboard here in the next week or two. Let's do it. All right, man. Well, appreciate you coming on. All right, brother. Bye, guys. Stay well.